0: What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp. And this week we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Rachel and I decided to take a week off from recording this last week. Um, My husband and I went away for several days uh, camping in the mountains, and sometimes it's nice to have just a, a week off. But we decided something we really wanted to do was play a sermon on our feed here. And it's a sermon from Todd Bordeaux. You know him from being a guest on this podcast but also as Rachel's pastor. We both really appreciated a sermon that he preached a couple of months ago on the mystery of godliness, and we really think it would be a great encouragement to our audience. Before I get to the sermon, I want to mention a couple of things. Um, The books that Rachel and I have put out, I'm going to put a link in the episode notes that Has links to each one of those we have a sermon notes notebook and then two different sermon notes notebooks for children then we also have uh, some Bible reading plan journals and then the catechism and scripture memory books so there will be a link in the episode notes
1: to each of these good morning congregation and happy Easter this is our morning sermon and it will be from 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. I'll read the verse then we'll pray. And so the word of God great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh justified by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory let's pray father in heaven we thank you for your word we thank you lord that your word reveals um, your character our gospel how to know you, how to serve you, our comfort, our promises. May we consider your word very precious, this wonderful gift. And we pray through this sermon that you would help us to understand it and glory in the truth that is presented here. here. Bless each one listening, Lord, unto their souls in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you may wonder why I'm choosing this, this text as an Easter sermon, because in one sense this is the most difficult text, or one of the most challenging verses in the entire New Testament. I remember the first time I preached through 1 Timothy. It took me so long with this verse to understand it, and to study it, and to take apart the Greek and study the history of the church on it and it doesn't seem to fit the rest of first timothy which is fairly straightforward instruction and yet right in the middle of this book we have what looks like a song or a hymn and once i've finally understood it it then took me it then took me a long time to figure out now how do i explain it in a sermon it doesn't seem to fit even First Timothy. And it is more like a song right in the middle. That's why most of your Bibles indent this passage, because it's more like a poem or a song than anything else in First Timothy. And so what does this verse mean? But why is it here in the middle of chapter 3 in this book? How does it fit? And we can understand this verse better by understanding the context of First Timothy, of what's going on. Uh, this letter was written to Timothy and also the church he pastored in the city of Ephesus. Timothy was the Apostle Paul's apprentice or helper in planting churches. After Paul left Ephesus, Timothy pastored there. And then Paul wrote this letter to his beloved son Timothy out of great concern with what was happening in the church there. He had heard reports of some very negative things happening there. And so he wrote out of great concern for the church, but also great concern for Timothy, because Timothy found himself in a very difficult situation, only getting worse. Now Paul met young Timothy on a second missionary journey in the town of Lystra in Asia Minor. The Christians who had already been converted under Paul in his first missionary journey spoke very highly of this young man. He was a newer Christian, but they were very impressed with him, whether with his godliness or his giftedness, probably both. And so on his second missionary journey, Paul got to know him, and he agreed with their assessment. And so Paul asked this young man to travel with him to preach the gospel and plant churches. Timothy was ordained, the Bible says, and then Timothy joined Paul in preaching the gospel around the world. Now Timothy was well aware of the risk in traveling with Paul because Paul tended to be beaten everywhere he went, either by the Jews or by the local governments. And so from the very beginning we get a glimpse into Timothy's Christian character. He's willing to risk his young life for the gospel. And Timothy, though a young man, stuck with Paul through good times and bad times. Even as many others were leaving Paul at the first sign of trouble, Timothy always stayed by his side. And so when Paul himself could not be at a certain church, he would send Timothy as his representative. Paul mentions Timothy very often throughout his letters and speaks of him as one whose service to Paul was invaluable. Who knows how often Timothy's presence blessed the apostle, especially during those dark times in prison. Paul had no natural children, but he began to think of Timothy as his own son, as he calls him, even in this epistle, my true child in the faith. But there was a problem with Timothy, Timothy had one major weakness that for normal jobs or people, it wouldn't be a weakness. But as a pastor, this was a weakness. Timothy hated conflict. Some people can live running from conflict, but a pastor cannot. Now this weakness in Timothy, that he was shy and he didn't like to confront anyone, is discerned from Paul's own repeated admonishments to him. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, he tells Timothy, or do not be ashamed, or let no one look down on your youthfulness. So we see by all these admonishments, Timothy was a timid young man who did not like confrontation, but he couldn't avoid it any longer, not with all the problems in the church at Ephesus. Now you don't have to be a pastor to sympathize with young Timothy, How would you like to be the one to follow the Apostle Paul as pastor? Paul had pastored there three years. He planted the church. And so after Paul left, Timothy was the new pastor. And comparisons and disappointments would be inevitable. Especially given how young Timothy was. And so nobody would want to follow the Apostle Paul. Especially a young man. And so when we consider the difficulties Timothy faced, and the fact that he did not like to confront, we see why Paul needed to write this letter to encourage Timothy. Now the nature of the problem at the church in the church was first and foremost doctrinal. There were a group of men teaching bad or false doctrine. We see that at the very beginning of the epistle in chapter 1 verse 3. Paul writes, to Timothy, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach different doctrines. And then the end of Timothy ends the same way as the beginning. Chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And so Paul begins First Timothy and he ends First Timothy with the same admonishment. Timothy, you need to instruct these men to stop teaching this false knowledge, this bad teaching that's hurting people. And, and you need to refute them and correct them. Now there are many issues Paul deals with throughout the book but there's an underlying theme that ties them all together and that is that the problems in this church are the result of a group of men teaching this false doctrine and they all had no respect for Timothy as pastor they were even denying the need for church officers in the new covenant and so the question of who is qualified to teach in the church permeates this book these false teachers twisted Paul's words that we have been raised with Christ and all things were new. And so they were suggesting in this new covenant age, they had no need for pastors like Timothy to instruct them. They didn't need to to listen or submit to anyone. They could teach whatever they wanted. And so in chapter one, Paul is instructing Timothy how to deal with men who do not respect God the office of pastor and they especially did not respect Timothy. Now Paul pulls no punches when he describes these men in verse 7 of chapter 1 as those who desire to be teachers of the law even though they do not know what they are talking about. This lack of respect for authority is seen at the beginning of chapter 2 where Paul teaches us about our relationship to the government. That we should not only submit to them, but pray for their well-being. These men would say things like, our only authority is Christ. We do not have to submit to any human authority, especially pagan authority. Paul has to deal with women in office that men should be the ones with the authority to teach in the church. In chapter 3, Paul lays out the criteria for church office, refuting those men who think, Anyone can be an officer, or we don't need officers. At the beginning of verse 4, Paul deals with these men who were teaching that we don't need marriage anymore. Or we do not need to eat certain foods. They would say things like marriage belongs to the old order. We're new in Christ. Christ wasn't married. And when he was resurrected, he ate only fish. And so if we want to be like Christ, we don't need marriage and we should only eat certain foods. These were the type of legalistic teachings that were promoted in the church, and these men were very strong-willed, and Timothy was avoiding confronting them. And so these false teachers promoted a godliness that could be attained by human works and human discipline. That even helps explain that very strange statement out of nowhere in chapter 5, verse 23. Whereas Paul is discussing how to ordain elders, he writes, Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach. If you don't understand the context, you're thinking, where did that come from? But it makes sense in the bigger picture because it's likely these men were teaching that it was a sin to drink alcohol. And so young Timothy had probably acquiesced to these tyrants in the church. Even though wine was good for the stomach, He did not want to offend these legalistic teachers, and so he wasn't drinking any wine. And and Paul instructs him, Timothy, it's okay. Drink a little wine for your stomach. And so what we have here in Ephesus is a group of men who were unruly, disrespectful of church authority, especially disrespectful of Timothy looking down on his youthfulness. And it became a church measured, the spirituality was measured, by what they did or did not do. The Christ-centered gospel of grace, through faith alone. All being done, all of our spiritual blessings coming through Christ alone. All of that was being buried by this legalism. Now you have to feel for young Timothy, especially with his weakness. This was the church Paul sent Timothy to pastor and he was alone. And it was against these strong-willed men that Timothy must stand. And so Paul needed to write this letter to encourage him to fulfill his calling and trust the Lord. You see, it was not only the false teachers and their followers and their teaching Paul was writing to admonish, it was Timothy himself. Because Timothy had failed to confront these teachers, he was not fulfilling his pastoral ministry. And not only was Timothy failing to confront them, but Timothy was in danger of being seduced by their teaching. Timothy himself was shying away from enjoying his freedoms in Christ because of the judgment of these legalists. Maybe Timothy was convinced that was the only way not to rock the boat. And so that brings us to our verse. But let's first look at behind that verse to verse 15, that sets up verse 16. Verse 15 forms a mild rebuke to Timothy. He says, I hope, or verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God now what's interesting is that the you in chapter five, excuse me in verse 15 is singular paul is first and foremost addressing timothy i'm writing this to you timothy so you know how to behave as pastor in the household of god now obviously most of the book goes beyond timothy himself and so the whole church is being addressed beyond that but timothy is receiving a rebuke here very gentle one from Paul, how to fulfill his ministry. Now, with that in mind, that brings us to this very unusual and enigmatic verse, verse 16. Remember, the false teachers believed that they had found a way to godliness through their own works, their own disciplines, their own legalism. So Paul begins verse 16, without controversy, Great is the mystery of godliness. Or great indeed, we confess, depending on your translation, is the mystery or godliness. With all that these false teachers believed, that godliness is something you can do if you just do the right things or avoid certain things, Paul writes, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness, or what we call sanctification, is a mystery. And not only is it a mystery, it's a great mystery. Now the term mystery does not mean that this doctrine is so difficult to understand or so esoteric that only the those initiated few could even attain to knowing it. The term mystery in the Bible usually means it's something that could, cannot be understood by the wisdom of this world. Matter of fact, its wisdom is antithetical or even foolish to the way people naturally think. And so if you could produce godliness through the way these false teachers were suggesting, by what you do or don't do, then godliness would not be a mystery, it would simply be a mathematical equation. You do this, and then you will become this. But Paul will make sure Timothy and the church understand that a Christian view of godliness leaves absolutely no room for human pride, boasting in what I have done. And so, in other words, any thought of God has done his part, now we have to do our part, that has to be stricken from your vocabulary. And so what then is the mystery of godliness? How do we become like Christ? If it is not based on doing the exact right things, or not doing certain things, well, we see here the answer: The mystery of godliness is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ, applied to you. Let me repeat that: the mystery of godliness is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to you, not only for justification but for sanctification not only for being forgiven of your sins, but in all subsequent growth in godliness. We could even say that the resurrection begins the application of godliness. And so how does a Christian grow in the Lord? How does a Christian have Christian character? Well, it's a mystery. Now, what what do I mean by that? Well, Paul quotes here in verse 16, from what seems to have been a common hymn or confession in the early church. In the Greek, it reads more like a song than even in the English. The mystery of godliness begins with the incarnation of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. Godliness is a person. Here was the only righteous man, the Son of God taking on human form. If you want to find true righteousness, you you have to look at the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's why a definition of godliness begins looking at Christ as a man with the incarnation. The only righteousness that pleases God and deserves anything good was the righteousness of the Son of God who became a man. It is Christ who is righteous for us as our representative. And so by the beginning of this confession, Paul is lifting the minds of these legalistic Christians off themselves and onto Christ. You want to know where your godliness comes from? Here he is. It begins with Christ becoming a man. The second phrase of this confession, excuse me, confession is a little more startling. He was justified in the Spirit. Now, some of the more recent translations chose to translate the word as vindicated. And that's an option in the Greek. The idea would be that Jesus was vindicated or proved to be everything he claimed to be at his resurrection. He claimed to be sinless. He was proven to be sinless because he didn't have to suffer for his own sins. He claimed to be the son of God. The resurrection proves he was the son of God. And so he was vindicated from a charge that he was a sinner and he was not God. But if you look at a King James translation, and that's the translation I'm going with this morning, the King James translators chose to translate this word in the most common way it was used in the New Testament. And that is with the word justified. And so, he was justified in the Spirit. What is justification? Justification is when God declares someone righteous. Now you see why this would cause some of the later translators discomfort. We don't usually think of Jesus needing justification. Why would Jesus need to be declared righteous? Wasn't he always righteous? Why then would the King James translators think that Jesus was justified what were they thinking but it's the fact that Jesus was declared righteous at his resurrection that we were justified in other words Jesus wasn't declared righteous in the sense in his character he was always righteous he was declared righteous because he fulfilled the covenant of works that Adam failed to do for us Jesus went all the way to the cross according to God's command that we would be saved. He was the perfect one who gave his life for us, but he lived the perfect life for us. And so by the Father declaring him righteous at the resurrection, he was declaring that Jesus fulfilled everything required in our place. He took on our sin and was punished as a sinner but not for his own sins. And so at the resurrection, the Father declared him righteous. All those sins that had laid were laid upon him were already removed. And so now Jesus is being declared the perfect man, fit for heaven. And so that's our hope. That's our godliness before God. Because when we are justified, God declares us righteous. And at that moment, he justifies us when we believe in Christ, we are fit for heaven. Well, how are we fit for heaven if we still sin? Because the basis of our declaration was Christ's declaration. The very fact that our representative was declared righteous, fit for heaven, that ensures us that our declaration gave us the same thing, because he represents us. That is why the King James translators, rightly I believe, um, interpreted this. He was justified by the Spirit. He was now filled with the Spirit of glory as the perfect resurrected man. He was justified in the Spirit. And that's exactly what will happen to us when we're resurrected, is we'll have the Spirit, like never before, fit for the presence of God And so this is the glory of godliness. This is the great mystery that it doesn't come from us. It comes from another person's works. It comes from Christ's works. That's what makes us righteous before God. Great is the mystery of this idea that our righteousness is from Christ and not from what we do. That is not the way people normally think about what makes us righteous before God. People naturally think it's based on what we do or do not do. Paul says, great is the mystery of the gospel. And so, before God could declare you righteous, he needed to declare your Savior righteous. And as sure as the Father declared him righteous, that is what your declaration is based on. Now, this confession is arranged in three couplets. Each couplet recounts an accomplishment of Christ on earth and an accomplishment of Christ in heaven. It alternates back and forth. And so look at the first one. Jesus was manifested in the flesh on earth and then justified in the Spirit in heaven. In the second couplet, we begin in heaven again and then go back to earth. He was seen by angels in heaven and then preached among the Gentiles on earth. In the book of Colossians, Paul teaches that upon his ascension, the heavenly beings beheld Christ in his resurrected glory. He was beheld and glorified by the angels. Back on the earth, um, filled with the Holy Spirit, the church was spreading the gospel. And so through the work of Christ, the gospel was going out on the earth. And before that, the angels beheld him in heaven. Now, what is the point? Well, the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of the church around the world are part of what Christ already purchased for us on the cross. Notice the past tense. He was preached among the nations. Now, do you see what Paul is doing? Don't lose his train of thought. He's explaining the mystery of godliness. And so if you ever want to boast what you as a church are doing, that you've reached people for Christ, you can't boast in it, because this is all ordained by God and fulfilled because Christ purchased those souls, and he ensured that the Spirit would open their heart. We as a church do nothing in ourselves, only what Christ has already purchased and ordained for us to do. Our works were prepared beforehand by God and then guaranteed through Christ's death and resurrection. The very fact that you came to faith in Christ was ordained by God already and planned and secured through Christ's death and resurrection. Even that faith Christ purchased on the cross. Do you see where Paul is going? Timothy, those men who are boasting in their works, tell them where godliness comes from. There's nothing you do as an individual and there's nothing you do as a church that is of yourself. It's all from the work of Christ. Do you still want them to boast? Are you still going to allow them to boast that they are doing their part and they're better than others? Everything comes from the work of Christ. Now you may think, wow, this is getting more and more mysterious how this all works. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting verse 16. Now the last couplet begins on earth and ends in heaven. This back and forth, heaven to earth, earth to heaven, um, this back and forth brings home the cosmic scope of the work of Christ. And so the third couplet begins, he was believed on in the world. Again, faith is a work of Christ, not your own work. Christ did not die to make salvation possible hoping you might choose him. Christ guaranteed your salvation on the cross and ensured that you would believe. He gave you that faith. He purchased your faith with his own blood. And so any response you have to the gospel is not your work. It's the work of Christ. And so here is the warning to Timothy to not boast in anything even any positive results from his own ministry. Christ secured all these at his death and resurrection. If anything good comes from Timothy's ministry, it's only because he has entered into Christ's ministry. Those people you touch with the gospel, or in any way, that was all planned by God and secured by his spirit. And so if God uses you in any way in life, you should simply thank him. Thank thank you, Lord, for including me in your plan. You didn't need to, but you did. Thank you. And then finally, the last stanza. He was received up in glory. Of course, speaking of his ascension. Now you noticed it, didn't you? If you were looking at this carefully, you notice something that seems off. The confession is chronologically backwards. Christ's ascension is listed after the response of the nations to the gospel. Now we would expect the ascension to come first and then the expansion of the church because that's how it happened. Christ rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of God. At Pentecost, he poured out his spirit and then the gospel went out into the world. But notice Paul reverses the order First, the gospel goes out into the world, and then it ends with his ascension. But you see, the reverse of this order only underscores Paul's point. We can take credit for nothing. The witness of the church throughout the ages comes before the ascension because it was all accomplished by Christ anyways. It's the same reverse order we see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1.30 which says, But of him you are in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who became for us us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Now that's odd to have sanctification before redemption. Usually we think of we're redeemed, and then we're sanctified. But here Paul turns it around again, because both of those, any way you look at it, were purchased and guaranteed by Christ. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now before we close, I know what some of you may be thinking, and I can sense the objection forming in your minds. And if you have this objection, it actually shows you are thinking deeply about this. The typical objection to this understanding of of godliness is Does this mean we don't need to do anything ourselves? If Christ did it all, do we then do nothing? Well, let me answer your question with a question. Did the knowledge of Christ's finished work for all our salvation and sanctification cause the Apostle Paul to do nothing? Well, God forbid, right? It is only as you humble yourself of any fleshly ability to produce godliness or faith or growth, will you be able to do anything? Your own works, your own disciplines, your own habits. You you cannot produce true godliness. And so you have to go to God for it. You have to pray for it. And you have to simply listen to the gospel and be strengthened by it. You cannot produce it on your own. And as you hear the gospel, as you pray and trust him for it because you have no strength, God promises to hear and he promises to bless his word, whether the gospel preached and then the gospel read or considered. Now, I know Paul's radical teaching on godliness eliminates About 90% of all books in our so-called Christian bookstores of our day because so many books are all about 10-step principles to finding contentment or finding God's will or growing in this or that all through fleshly means that if you do these things then you'll be one of those people who grow in the Lord. Paul is saying throw that all out that's exactly what these legalists in Ephesus were teaching. And of course, this is the underlying assumption in all our modern desires for seminars and activities that are designed to change your life. You cannot program spiritual change. By the way, Martin Luther tried that through all his disciplines. And after a while, he realized this got him nowhere. I am nowhere closer to God disciplining my body than I was when I lived a wanton life this has not helped me at all there's got to be another way I remember speaking to a friend who was a leader in a church youth group he was planning to take a group of college students on a short term mission trip he told me his goal for that mission trip was to produce spiritual life change in all his college age students He considered that the normal day-to-day life of the church was not doing this. So he needed a very dramatic mission trip to produce life change. Of course, he didn't realize that that was entirely impossible. You cannot program spiritual life change. Christ works out his own godliness in each of his children through his means and in his timing. You cannot program it. You cannot rush it. You cannot find the proper techniques for it. You can't rush your own sanctification. And so great is the mystery of godliness. The world looks at us and when they see that we're different in our character, in our attitude, in our faith, they can't under—they cannot understand where it comes from. And so the, naturally they think, what did you do? But our answer has to be, Our salvation, our faith, our sanctification, our character is not from us. It comes down from heaven. It is given to us through what Christ did for us and what he does in us. It's a great mystery to the human mind. Christ has already accomplished and guaranteed everything good in us. We simply enter into that work by faith. I remember when I was a new Christian, I was 17, and in my teen years, I I swore all the time I spoke the Lord's name in a way most non-Christian teenagers did. Jesus this, and God that. And I remember, after a few months of being a new Christian, I noticed that I never used the Lord's name that way anymore. And it took a few months for me to even notice it. And I remember sitting in my room thinking, I haven't said Jesus Christ in a blasphemous way or God, and you know what I mean. I haven't said that in a few months, but I never remembered trying to stop it. I never remembered trying to work on it. It just happened. And, and I was sort of confused. How did that happen? And it took me a while to realize the Spirit was doing that inside me. And and I didn't even have to have a 10-step program how to stop cussing or anything. That doesn't mean you don't work on things, but you. If the point is, great is the mystery of godliness. It is God working in you, and you need to pray that it's God who does it and the Holy Spirit who changes you. You cannot do it on your own. If, someone, if anyone ever asks you, Why do you do that? Or why is your attitude different? Or why do you believe? Don't be like these Ephesian false teachers who would boast in everything they do or don't do. Don't boast in everything you know. What would the apostle say here? What is the secret to godliness? Why do I believe and follow Jesus? Well, here's how Paul answers it. In the human way of thinking, Great is this mystery. But if you really want to understand it, it's all about Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. And so Paul says, Timothy, remember this and go stop those men. They are ruining genuine Christianity. They have turned this into all about themselves instead of about Christ and what he has done. Timothy, you know better. You know the gospel. You know how you were converted. You know that your only acceptance is because of Christ. And if you don't stop this, they are going to destroy the Christian faith right in front of you. And so you need to teach them the mystery of godliness and that he who glories Must glory in the Lord. And so, congregation of Cornerstone, this Easter Sunday, here is my admonishment to you. Rest. Simply rest. The work for your salvation and sanctification is guaranteed. It's all been done because Christ died for you because God loved you and he loves you. Simply rest in him. Remember, it is finished and he rose again to guarantee it. Rest and rejoice. Great is the mystery of godliness. Amen.